Welcome back, friends. Bill Creasy here with Monday's episode of Scripture Uncovered. Hey, good to be back with you this Monday morning and looking forward to our time ahead as we move into new material here on Scripture Uncovered. But before we begin, I'd like to note that on Saturday, this past Saturday, we did the second of our Zoom tours of the brand new website, logosbiblestudy.com, with the entire course catalog, 22 university level courses, 450 video lessons, and a ton of supplementary material. We had about 50 people in our Zoom meeting, and people were pretty excited about it. And over the past two weeks, since we've launched the site, we've seen the memberships climbing dramatically every day since. So I bring it to your attention because we're going to do another Zoom meeting, a tour of the website, this coming Saturday at noon Pacific time. If you would like to attend, you have to have an invitation. And the way to get an invitation, if we have your name and email already, you'll be getting one. But if we don't have your name and email, go to logosbiblestudy.com, slide down to the bottom of the homepage, and you can put in your name and email. That way you'll be sure to get an invitation. It's pretty exciting what we're doing with that new website and how we're delivering the content online via video and Zoom meetings together. Office hours every Tuesday and Thursday from 11 to 12 Pacific time. And with our featured course, a two-hour discussion session with the students who are taking the featured course. All of that is included with your membership on the new website. So we should move on now and get into some new material. We finished with the Apostle Paul and the Acts of the Apostles, leaving Paul in Rome, AD 60 to 62, awaiting his hearing before the royal imperial court in Rome. An appearance, a hearing, that never came to pass. Apparently, the Jewish leaders from Jerusalem, who were required to be there because Paul, as a Roman citizen, had the right to face his accusers. So apparently, they simply didn't show up. Or they had come earlier and went back home because Paul was delayed in a shipwreck on the island of Malta. So pretty exciting stuff. But we leave Paul there, sitting in Rome, and I'd like now to turn back to the Old Testament. And I'd like to do something a little bit different today. And what I'd like to do is explore some poetry. In particular, the Song of Songs. Now we learn in 1 Kings chapter 5 at verse 12 that Solomon wrote 3,000 proverbs and his songs numbered 1,005. 1,005 songs. And of those 1,005, the Song of Songs is number one on the hit parade. Although Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines, can you imagine? <laughs> As an old man, he remembers back many decades earlier to his great love, a love now fading from memory, a love diminished over time, but a love that was like none other. For Solomon, the beautiful young woman was perhaps the only person or thing that he had ever truly loved. 
Solomon's Song of Songs is, quite frankly, a highly charged erotic love poem. Consequently, it entered the Hebrew canon of Scripture only reluctantly, and it did so primarily because it was attributed to King Solomon. Now, to make it acceptable to pious ears, the Song of Songs has been read traditionally in Judaism as an allegory of God's love for Israel. Likewise, in Christianity, the Song of Songs has been read as an allegory of Christ's love for the church. But I have to tell you honestly, it's an erotic love poem. So let's have a look at it. I bet you can't wait. Oh, you're baiting your breath, you're holding it. Oh. The Song of Songs is a collection of love poetry loosely held together by an implied drama. The speakers are, number one, a young woman, the Shulamite, a beautiful teenage country maiden. Number two, her friends, city girls who form a sort of chorus. And number three, a young man, perhaps a handsome and youthful Solomon. Now, there's no narrator in the Song of Songs, nor is there a strict narrative unity or plot. There is, however, a strong sense of forward motion in the dialogue, as well as passionate love, conflict, and tension between two young lovers. At least one critic calls the Song of Songs an anthology of love poems, a kind of erotic psalter. Now, there were plenty of antecedents to the Song of Songs dating back to the Egyptian New Kingdom, which was 1550 BC to 1069 BC, the 18th, 19th, and 20th Egyptian dynasties, just prior to the age of King Solomon. The Song of Songs begins with a superscription The Song of of songs, a superlative. Now we've seen this in the refrain in Ecclesiastes, meaningless, utterly meaningless. The superlative is a word simply mentioned again in an intensified form. So the song of songs, number one on the hit parade of 1,005 songs. The song of songs is a song by, of, or about Solomon. Much as in the Psalms, we have 73 Psalms attributed to David, the Davidic Psalms. That is, Psalms by, of, or about David, a David Psalm. Well, in the same way, the Song of Songs is a Solomon Song. Now, like Ecclesiastes, the Song of Songs probably emerged after the Babylonian captivity, that is, after 539 B.C., but not later than the Greek conquest of Palestine by Alexander the Great prior to 331 BC. So we have a framework there, post 539 to pre-331. And if that's the case, the Song of Songs is not a composition written by Solomon, but one written about Solomon. The male speaker, 
being the voice or persona of Solomon, a perfectly legitimate form of composition. So here we go. Oh, I bet you can't wait. She says, the beloved, Oh, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is more delightful than wine, pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder the young women, that is, the friends who will speak in a bit, no wonder the young women love you. Oh, take me away with you, let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers, his bedroom. Her friends say, we rejoice and delight in you. The you is a masculine singular. That is, her friends rejoice and delight in him. We will praise your love, his love, more than wine. So the drama begins. Now, it would be a mistake, though, to envision the Song of Songs as analogous to a Greek drama played out on a stage in a theater complete with a Greek chorus. Here, the speakers, she, the friends, and him, speak within the context of a dramatic poem. Their voices operating apart from any discernible plot or narrative. It's more accurate to think of the Song of Songs as a collection of miniature poetic dramas, episodes or vignettes in the life of two young lovers. And notice that it's she who takes the initiative all throughout the poem. She longs for him, luxuriating in memories of his kisses, the taste of his mouth, the scent of his breath. His very name takes her breath away. She longs to enter into his bedroom, for his love is more delightful than wine. It is intoxicating. And her friends agree. They too praise him, evoking the rich, sensuous banquet and taste of a fine vintage wine. She says, How right they are, that is, her friends, to adore you. Dark am I, yet lovely daughters of Jerusalem, dark like the tents of Kedar, like the tent curtains of Solomon. Do, do not stare at me because I'm dark, because I'm darkened by the sun. My mother's sons were angry with me and made me take care of the vineyards. My own vineyard I had to neglect. So the infatuated young girl is dark, for her brothers forced her to tend the vineyards. Now, she's Semitic, so she's naturally dark-skinned, but her skin is much darker than the other girls because she works outdoors in the fields under the hot sun. She's a country girl, one who works in the fields, in contrast to her friends, the daughters of Jerusalem, who are city girls. Now, if we identify he as a young Solomon, the friends may be those girls at court, the pampered palace girls. She, on the other hand, is a simple farmer's daughter. Now that's a really interesting contrast. The city girls and the country girl. 
The simple and beautiful country girl is a staple of pastoral poetry, poetry that idealizes the country life of shepherds and shepherdesses. It's an ancient genre of literature dating way back to at least Hesiod's works and days, around 700 BC. In pastoral poetry, the country is like the Garden of Eden, and the girls are often beautiful and innocent, although <laughs> sexy as all get out. She says, Tell me, you whom I love, where you graze your flock and where you rest your sheep at midday. Why, why should I be like a veiled woman beside the flocks of your friends? So continuing with the pastoral ambiance, she asks where he grazes his flock, where he rests them at midday, because she longs to join him. Now, as a young prince, Solomon certainly didn't tend sheep as a shepherd. But she sees him in the fields with her in a dreamy pastoral scene. It's something of a tease. And her friends play along. Her friends say, If you do not know, most beautiful of women, follow the tracks of the sheep and graze your young goats by the tents of the shepherds. You'll bump into them. <laughs> He says, I liken you, my darling, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariot horses. Your cheeks are beautiful with earrings, your neck with strings of jewels. We will make you earrings of gold studded with silver. He likens her to Pharaoh's chariot horses. You might recall from 1 Kings chapter 10, that Solomon imported thoroughbred horses from Egypt, the best and most beautiful horses in the world. Invoking Pharaoh also reminds us of Egyptian erotic love poetry, a nice transition to what follows. She says, While the king was at his couch, my perfume spread its fragrance. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh resting between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms from the vineyards of Engedi. Now this scene crackles with erotic tension and anticipation. Her perfume is nard, an expensive perfume from India. Nard, sachet of myrrh, and henna blossoms all evoke sensual smells, anticipating an embrace and physical intimacy, as she cradles his head between her breasts. For the first of 31 times, she refers to him as her beloved or lover. He says, looking up into her eyes, head cradled between her breasts, Oh, how beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes are doves. She says, How handsome you are, my beloved. Oh, how charming. And our bed is verdant. He says, The beams of our house are cedars, our rafters are firs. 
the erotic kindling fans into flames as the lovers exchange compliments. And I have to say, I feel rather like a peeping Tom looking out through the bushes. Continuing with the pastoral imagery, the scene doesn't take place indoors, but outdoors in a pastoral bower. Their bed is verdant, that is fresh or green, and the beams of their house are cedar and fir as they lie on the grass in the shade of the spreading cedar and cedar and fir trees overhead. The scene on a picnic blanket beneath the spreading trees is a staple of pastoral poetry. Here, the lovers gaze into one another's eyes and continue their intimate exchange. Now, I'll bet most of you never thought this stuff was in the Bible, <laughs> but it is. She says, I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. He says, like a lily among thorns is my darling among the young women. Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest is my beloved among the young men, she says. I delight to sit in his shade, and his fruit is sweet to my taste. Let him lead me to the banquet hall. Let his banner over me be love. Ooh. Strengthen me with raisins. Refresh me with apples. I am faint with love. Oh, I have to mop my brow here. His left arm is under my head. His right arm embraces me. Oh, daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field. Do not arouse or awaken such love until it so desires. Now you can let your erotic imagination run wild with this scene. But honestly, can't we all remember something similar back in the day? <laughs> so taking a deep breath, we move on to a separate scene. She anticipates his arrival, catching the first sounds of his approach. She says, Listen, my beloved, look, here he comes, leaping across the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Look, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, peering through the lattice. My beloved spoke and said to me, Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. See, the winter is past, the rains are over and gone. Flowers appear on the earth, the season of singing has come. The cooing of doves is heard in our land. The fig tree forms its early fruit. The blossoming vines spread their fragrance. Arise, come, my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. It's springtime, the time for young love. And we move to a new scene. He says, my dove in the clefts of the rock, in the hiding places on the mountainside, show me your face. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Catch for us the foxes, the little foxes that ruin the vineyards, our vineyards that are in bloom. The 
little foxes are pests that ruin vineyards and orchards, destroying the fruit. The little foxes in the poem are threats to the relationship between the lover and his beloved, perhaps jealousy, the gossip of friends, or the disapproval of others. Theocritus, the 3rd century BC Greek bucolic poet, speaks of pesky foxes in his Idols of Theocritus. Let me read idol number one, line 45. There's a vineyard well laden with clusters red to the ripening, and a little lad seated watching upon a hedge, and on either side of him two foxes. These range to and fro along the rows and pilfer all such grapes as be ready for eating. She says to him, My beloved is mine, and I am his. He browses among the lilies. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee, turn, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or like a young stag on the rugged hills. Him browsing among the lilies reinforces the pastoral bucolic scene, but it also suggests sexual intimacy browsing among the lilies until the day breaks and the shadows flee. That's a poetic way of saying he stayed the night, and together they watched the sun rise. And when she says, turn, my beloved, she's inviting him to turn toward her and be like a young stag. Now we move to another scene a scene in which the beloved is alone at night, desperate to see her young lover. She says, All night long on my bed, I looked for the one my heart loves. I looked for him, but did not find him. I will get up now and, 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 and go about the city through its streets and squares. I'll, I'll search for the one my heart loves. So I looked for him, but did not find him. The watchmen found me as they made their rounds of the city. Have you seen the one my heart loves? The poor girl's waiting in her bedroom for her lover to arrive, and as the hours tick by, she grows more and more desperate, finally sneaking out of her house and wandering in the streets looking for him, perhaps searching at her friends' houses and peering through their windows. Finally, she asks a night watchman, and then, scarcely had I passed them, the watchman, when I found the one my heart loves. Oh, I held him and would not let him go till I brought him to my mother's house, to the room of the one who conceived me. Oh, daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field, do not arouse or awaken such love until it so desires. The scene cuts again to a, a new poem, a vision of Solomon, splendid in his royal finery. Her friends say, Who is this coming up from the wilderness like a column of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and incense made from all the spices of the merchant? Look, it is Solomon's carriage, escorted by sixty warriors, the noblest of Israel. 
all of them wearing the sword, all experienced in battle, each with his sword at his side, prepared for the terrors of the night. King Solomon made for himself the carriage. He made it of wood from Lebanon, its posts he made of silver, its base of gold, its seat was upholstered with purple, its interior inlaid with love. She says, Daughters of Jerusalem, come out. Look, you daughters of Zion. Look on King Solomon wearing a crown, the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, the day his heart rejoiced. Here, our reading differs from that in the NIV translation that I've been reading from. Although there are different speakers throughout the Song of Songs, the she, she, the friends, and him, and perhaps some others, the Hebrew text doesn't label who the speakers are, so we're left to guess, relying on the masculine-feminine pronouns and whether they're singular or plural, and even then, it's often not quite clear. In chapter 3, verses 6 through 11, the NIV translation continues the beloved speech, but I'm viewing it differently, assigning the first part of the poem, 6 through 10a, to the voice of the friends, and the latter part, 10b to 11, to the voice of the beloved. In this division, the friends see Solomon's royal wedding carriage approaching with the beloved in it. She's about to marry him. She then invites her friends to come out and look at her, and at Solomon wearing his wedding, wedding crown, placed on him by his mother, Bathsheba. The scene recalls Psalm 45, a royal wedding psalm. Let me read part of it to you. Psalm 45. For the director, according to the tune of Lilies, a song that everyone then knew and we don't know now. But everyone knew the tune. It would be like my saying, a song to the tune of the Yellow Rose of Texas. The Yellow Rose of Texas, da-da-da-da-da-da. We know the tune. They knew the tune of Lilies. A masculine, a type of psalm of the Sons of Korah. A love song. And here it is. My heart overflows with noble words. To the king I must speak the song I have made. My tongue as nimble as the pen of a scribe, says the poet. You are the fairest of the children of men. And graciousness is poured upon your lips because God has blessed you forevermore. O oh, mighty one, gird your sword upon your thigh. In splendor and state, ride on in triumph for the cause of truth and goodness and right. Take aim with your bow in your dread right hand. Your arrows are sharp. Peoples fall beneath you. The poet says, the foes of the king fall down and lose heart. Your throne, O oh God, shall endure forever. And then he's back to describing the bridegroom. A scepter of justice is the scepter of your kingdom. Your love is for justice, your hatred for evil. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above other kings. Your robes are fragrant with aloes and myrrh. From the ivory palace, you're greeted with the music. The daughters of kings are among your loved ones. On your right stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Listen, O oh daughter, 
Give ear to my words, speaking to the bride. Forget your own people and your father's house. So will the king desire your beauty. He is your Lord. Pay homage to him, and the people of Tyre shall come with gifts. The richest of the people shall seek your favor. And the poet says, The daughter of the king is clothed with splendor, her robes embroidered with pearls set in gold. She is led to the king with her maiden companions. They are escorted amid gladness and joy. They pass within the palace of the king. The poet says to her, Sons shall be yours in place of your fathers. May this song make your name forever remembered. May the peoples praise you from age to age. Now that is quite the royal wedding psalm. And with the match made, the lover, back in the Song of Songs, now extols the beauty of his bride in a catalog of her physical charms. He says, How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes behind your veil are doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from the hills of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shorn, coming up from the washing. Each one has its twin, not one of them is alone. No missing teeth. <laughs> your lips are like a scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like the halves of a pomegranate. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built with courses of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, a necklace, all of them shields of warriors. Your breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle that browse among the lilies. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee, I will go to the mountain of myrrh, to the hill of incense. Now that is erotic, I gotta tell you. You are altogether beautiful, my darling. There is no flaw in you. Well, that's pretty complimentary love poetry. And then she, of course, returns the favor, cataloging his charms. She says, My beloved is radiant and ruddy, outstanding among 10,000. His head is purest gold, his hair is wavy as black as a raven. His eyes are like doves by the water streams, washed in milk, mounted like jewels. His cheeks are like beds of spice, yielding perfume. His lips are like lilies dripping with myrrh. His arms are rods of gold set with topaz. His body like polished ivory, decorated with lapis lazuli. His legs are pillars of marble set on bases of pure gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as its cedars. And oh, his mouth is sweetness itself. He is altogether lovely. This is my beloved, this my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. <laughs> now, we noted earlier that the Song of Songs has antecedents dating back to the Egyptian New Kingdom, just prior to the age of King Solomon. Here's an Egyptian poem that includes a similar catalog of the beloved's 
physical charms. It's from the Papyrus Chester Beatty 1, columns 1 through 5, stanza 1 on the verso. Sister without rival, most beautiful of all, she looks like the star goddess rising at the start of the good new year. Perfect and bright, shining skin, seductive in her eyes when she glances, sweet in her lips when she speaks, and never a word too many. <laughs> Slender neck, shining body, her hair is true lapis. Her arm gathers gold, her fingers are like lotus flowers, ample behind, <laughs> a rather large butt, tight waist, her thighs extend her beauty, shapely in stride when she steps on the earth. Oh, she has stolen my heart with her embrace, she has made the neck of every man turn round at the sight of her. Whoever embraces her is happy, he's like the head of lovers, and she is seen going outside like that goddess, the one goddess. Did you ever have anyone write poetry to you like that? I didn't. The courtly love always has a catalog of the beloved's physical charms. It's a convention, and it's one that was so common that Shakespeare very cleverly mocks that convention. Let me read to you from Shakespeare's sonnets. Shakespeare's sonnets, here we go. My mistress' eyes are nothing like the sun. Coral is far more red than her lips red. Why if snow be white, then her breasts are dun. If hairs be wires, black wires grow on her head. Now, I have seen roses damask, red and white, but no such roses see I in her cheeks. And in some perfumes is there more delight than in the breath that from my mistress reeks. <laughs> I, I love to hear her speak, yet well I know that music hath a far more pleasing sound. I grant I never saw a goddess go. My mistress, when she walks, treads on the ground. And yet, by heaven, I think my love as rare as any she belied with false compare. Now, you have to admit, that's pretty darn good. But back to the Song of Songs. Here the lover compares his beloved to an enclosed garden, and she responds. He says, you are a garden locked up, my sister, my bride. You are a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. Your plants are an orchard of pomegranates with choice fruits with henna and nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with every kind of incense tree, with myrrh and aloes and all the finest spices. You are a garden fountain, a well of flowing water streaming down, from Lebanon. She says, Awake, north wind, come, south wind, blow on my garden, that its fragrance may spread everywhere. Let my beloved come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. Oh, 
I have to pause here and take a drink. The enclosed garden is a standard trope in courtly love poetry of the Middle Ages. Livermont de la Rose, around 1230 AD, is a prime example. The first part of the poem, over 4,000 lines, is set in an enclosed garden, and it explores the art of romantic love. The virgin is an enclosed garden, and the lover seeks to breach the wall. In artwork, often in the form of a unicorn with one horn protruding. He says, I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. The friends say, eat friends and drink, drink your fill of love. As the Song of Songs was later viewed as an allegory of Christ's love for the church, so did the enclosed garden trope become an allegory for the angel Gabriel's annunciation to the Virgin Mary. We see that in artwork all throughout the Middle Ages. Well, let's pause here as we fan our fevered brows and we'll continue our look at the Song of Songs on Wednesday. Oh, I bet you can't wait. I can't. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you, gang. Something a little different today, and it will be again on Wednesday. We'll, we'll look at the Song of Songs. So keep in mind our topic and get right back. Get right back. And also, if you'd like to attend the guided tour of our new website on Saturday at 12 o'clock noon Pacific time. Make sure we have your name and email and you'll be getting an invitation. Thanks a lot, folks. Great being with you. I'll see you again on Wednesday. Bye-bye now. Mm -hmm.